Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film A Letter to Three Wives from 1949 with my wonderful guest, Ashley Blanchett. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, we have my wonderful friend, Ashley Blanchett. Hello, Ashley. Hey, girl. Um, And we also talked about the film A Letter to Three Wives from 1949. Um, Ash, what did you think? How'd you feel? I loved it. I loved it. Um, I had never heard of it before. And I couldn't believe that I didn't know this movie. I know all about Eve really well, but I didn't know that, like, right before it, Joseph Mankiewicz had done this movie. And um, I thought it was such a great glimpse into the psyche of women of the time. Um, And I can't wait to dive into it with you more. Um, So I want to share like why I chose this film. Um, Ironically enough, Ashley and I were actually supposed to watch a different film. We were going to watch The Heiress, but The Heiress was unavailable to view, which is crazy to me that like a prominent film that was Oscar nominated, that's like a big deal and has a really strong female character is just not available to view anywhere. Um, But we were going to watch this movie later in the season. So we just kind of bumped it up. Um, So uh, one of the reasons I chose this film is uh, also Joseph Mankiewicz. Um, He wrote and directed it. We haven't talked about him on the show. He's like an incredibly prolific, witty, wonderful writer and director. And so, yeah, I wanted to talk about him. And also, I just love this movie. It's one of those where I actually hadn't seen it in a few years. And I was wondering, um, a lot of times what happens on the show is I'll remember loving a film, we'll watch it here, and I'll see a lot of cracks in it. Or we'll be like, oh, maybe I don't love it as much as I thought. But this one, I loved it as much as the first time I saw it. It's just so wonderful. What a well-made film. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm so glad that, that we got to watch it here. And maybe that was a sign. We weren't supposed to watch The Heiress. We were supposed to watch A Letter to Three Wives. I'm glad we watched it. Yeah. So I'm going to do a plot synopsis for the people at home. So this film, what's so special about it is the way it's structured, right? Because it's a very simple premise. Um, The premise essentially is that there are three wives uh, who each have their own kind of like little issues in their relationship that have uncertainty around them so when one of their friends who's kind of it's manipulative you know like it's at first we're kind of on this character's side but then we realize maybe she's not such a nice human um she sends these three women a letter while they're on like a boat trip for the day so they can't get off the boat and they can't see you know the outcome she sends them a letter saying 
hey, I've left town and I've run off with one of your husbands. Bye. <laughs> have fun on your trip. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Yeah, that's a little strange. <laughs> it's like torturous. She knew what she was doing, um, but I think she was also having fun. I don't know. It's a mix with Addie. Anyway, so the char that character's name is Addie. So these three women, um, through flashback, are thinking about like the little problem in their marriage and worrying that their husband might be the husband that ran off. Um, and so when they get off the boat, we figure out which of the husbands did run off and what actually happened. Uh, we, and it's a spoiler alert, so I can tell you the, the husband came back. So the, our big fear of like, oh no, which of these women isn't going to be with their partner is yeah. evaporated because he came back. It's a 1940s comedy. Nobody left their husbands. <laughs> but still for being like a 1940s comedy, it is incredibly feminist, which I am mm. so into. And, um, yeah, like let's break into the feminism. I mean, I think part of the feminism comes from, this was like originally a story written in a magazine that became a book. And then it was made into a treatment by a female writer. So, and she's credited in this. Vera Caspri was her name. I think I'm saying it right. Caspri? I don't know. Vera Caspri was her name. She was a screenwriter and I think story developer at 20th Century Fox. And then when Joseph Mankiewicz started writing it, a lot of what he based it off of was her treatment. So like, oh, yeah, this like passed through a woman's hands. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's why. And like, kudos to Joseph Mankiewicz for giving her credit. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like he was always sort of like uh, conscious of women being at the forefront of the story. You know, like he he was good at that. So first of all, I want to ask, did you know which of the husbands had run off with Addie Ross? Or did you know from the beginning? Because the first time around I didn't, but this time knowing it was very obvious to me. It so was? did you know? Only if you've seen it before. Well, well, wait. So yeah, yeah. Know, so I was saying obvious. the very first time I watched it, I was like, I don't know. The second time I was like, oh, I see. The third relationship is really fascinating because, you know, they're the marriage that is the most unhappy seeming. And, you know, he's telling her to shut up all the time. And so it's it's I think seeing it from a modern viewpoint, I was thinking about this, actually, that like the the words shut up. I don't think they meant as much back then as they do now. I feel like even when I was a kid, like you would tell your friends to shut up and it'd be like what I'd be like, shut up. But I feel like now it's be, sh the words shut up have surprisingly become like like a no go. Like it's not OK to use them and really mean them. Like if you really want someone to be quiet, like you, you can you really don't have ever the right to be like, shut up like that's not cool but i but i feel like watching this movie back then it it wouldn't have been taken in such a serious way um but yeah watching him tell her shut up in scene after scene it it's definitely it comes across very harsh so i could see why you'd be like well that's clearly the relationship where he's run off and oh and i should break down who these people are in their relationships so the first couple is um I forget her name. What is it? Deborah, Deborah Bishop and Brad. 
Brad is very forgettable. I'm sorry. He's just like generic, handsome man. Very forgettable. But like their kind of marital issue is that she feels insecure in their relationship. So he's kind of like from a more wealthy background. He belongs to the country club. They met during World War II. She was in the Navy. Um, she grew up like with a kind of poor background, um, growing up on a farm, had never left the farm before going to the Navy. Um, but she talked about like the uniform that she wore in the Navy being a great leveler. Like no one knew your background when you were in the Navy. You could just kind of like be yourself and be seen like the same as everyone else and shine for your own merit. I was That was kind of what I got from it. So mm -hmm. for her, she was having a hard time kind of adapting or fitting into what she perceived as like this very gentrified life. So she has insecurities around that. So her worry about Brad is that he's run off with Addie Ross because they were high school sweethearts. Brad is handsome and she's worried she never quite fits in with this like country club set. And then there's um, Rita and George, who are obviously the cutest couple. <laughs> they were adorable. They've been together since they were five. Um, she's the one that has like the main, I guess the breadwinning role here. Like she's a radio writer and producer. She's the one who brings home the money for the family. He's a, a teacher um, and he's cool with this. Like it's the forties and some people like Porter are making comments like, don't you have a problem with your wife supporting you? And he's like, no, I don't. <laughs> and that's, that's nice. There is one point where he's like, sometimes it's hard for my male ego, but <laughs> I've accepted it. And you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, and their whole like insecurity thing is that, or their whole like marital issue is that she has put so much time into her work and she's being such like a kiss up to her boss and has no boundaries with her work. She's working all the time that uh, George doesn't really like that about her. Like he feels like she's being too, um, what's the word? Like snivelly at work. Like he doesn't like that she drops everything for her bosses who are like not very worthy people as we see. So, um, you know. There's that. I do love that he's like, it's not the job. I want you to still like have your job. I love that you're independent. I just don't like that you're putting everything into it and that they treat you not well. So that's yeah. like their marital issue. This was the one relationship where I felt like it was very indicative of the time because, you know, of course, it's not a woman saying to a man like, hey, you need to have more boundaries at work. It's a man saying that to a woman that like, and I think the way that it got solved in the end was kind of by her being like, hey, I'm not going to like be working this weekend because I want to spend time with my husband. And um, that to me was like a little bit like, OK, it's 1949 for sure, because, you know, we really want to reiterate the fact that like, you know, a woman can have a job, but like. First and foremost, she's a wife. And I think, you know, people of the day would watch that and be like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. That feels right to me. And although I appreciate what you're saying, the fact that he's like, no, 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 no. It's great that you're the breadwinner and I'll be a school teacher. I don't need to make a lot of money. And I respect it. Just like, don't lose yourself in it. I, there was sort of a part of me that was like, okay, but the way that we solved this issue was for her to be like, I'm spending time with my husband and like, you know, here are my boundaries because of, because of my husband that I want to more spend more time with. And that was like, you know, I understandable, but like also 
indicative of what decade we're in to me. Oh, totally. It's not as modern as it necessarily would be today, for sure. They did, you're right, right. they did yeah. want to remind us. But I appreciated that they threw the line in there where she's like, but I've made this choice for myself. Like, this is yeah, what I want. She's you're just right. like, my husband has asked that I spend less time at work, but I'm saying this for me because this is what I want. So they added that like independent line in there of her making the choice herself, just I think to like alleviate that a little bit. And to me, it was boundaries because what her boss was asking of her was not fair. Like. It, it wasn't right that she has to do rewrites all night and is producing and writing five shows a week and is constantly expected to just be on the clock. I liked I liked the setting of the boundaries, but yes, it still is 1949. But even for 1949, the fact that like we are supporting this relationship the most probably and this movie is behind her being a boss yeah. is pretty cool because so many movies in the 40s and 50s are so not. So I think I was just like, Oh, what a relief. What a breath yeah. of fresh air. Yeah. No, <gasps> it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And he's emotionally supportive of her too. And he like is. when after the big dinner, he's like, let me clean up. I was like, this is a dream man right here. <laughs> it's his birthday. <laughs> and he's like, can I clean up after your hard work dinner? Oh, you're right. He doesn't even care that it's his birthday and she forgot. Oh, love him he's a great guy um anyway so i liked that um and i do want to tell people at home the final relationship it's between porter and laura may this was my favorite it was a great relationship i liked all three for different reasons but i love i love the women in this anyway side note um porter and laura, laura may um they're the relationship that we as the audience are most unsure of because they don't reveal anything to each other which means that they don't really reveal it to us completely so laura may comes from a poor background which she's like not ashamed of and she shows us immediately um and uh porter is like the boss at her company so super creepy that the boss is crazy hitting on her but she's she's much younger than he is um probably by about like 15 to 20 years we're never really sure she's gorgeous um she's played by linda darnell and uh she does it she makes it clear that she wants to get out of her situation but we're not sure if she loves porter back and he's not sure of that either um and porter is throughout very bristly and rude and kind of macho and jerky and their relationship throughout looks like they're they're constantly verbally sparring and saying mean things to each other. But we're curious to see if there's really love there. So seeing them get together, we're not 100% sure if there's love together. Like we're rooting for them, but we're not sure if she's with him for the money or if she's with him because she loves him. And she keeps telling him what she wants. She keeps saying, I want a marriage where like, I am loved, essentially. Like I think her marriage goal, he has a picture of Addie Ross on his piano in a silver frame and she's like i want someone to have a picture of me on their piano in a silver frame in my own house so she's telling him she wants to be loved but he's kind of not hearing that he's thinking no she must only want me for my money so in the end he's the one that ran off with addie ross who by the way addie ross is the ghost who is never there right she's a voiceover uh voiced by celeste home and we're constantly told through the men, how perfect she is, how she always knows to say the right thing at the right time, how she looks great, how she's classy. But the women tell us kind of more of the truth about her, which is that she's kind of 
terrible. <laughs> like she might be kind of obnoxious and mean. Um, so like that's the different lens, how the men see her and how the women see her. And throughout, we get the idea that like Porter has viewed her as a dream. Like she's the ideal. So he is the one that runs off with Addie Ross, but comes back for Laura May. And they kind of have it out with each other where he's like, look, I told you that I left you in front of people. You're now free to leave me. And she doesn't want to leave him because she loves him. And that's like their way of saying, I love you to each other. Um, so we know that they're going to be okay in the end. And he finally <laughs> gets up and dances with her, even though he's not good at it, which is <laughs> nice. This this one to me was the most relatable and just a classic sort of like every woman and a man can kind of relate to this this whole experience of like wanting to be in a relationship with somebody, but also feeling very insecure and sort of playing it like a game. And um, her ability to sort of like trick him by like not sleeping with him and standing up for what she wants. And, you know, like she'll be like, she'll be like, you know, I'm not going to stay here tonight. And then she'll like go get her jacket and come back and be like, I'm leaving. And all that stuff was just like, Oh, it was like, this is an empowered woman in 1949. Like she's so smart. But what I love about their relationship is he he sees through all of that and he's just as smart. He's not completely like at first I thought that she really was playing him and she really was getting him to want her because she wasn't sleeping with him. And that whole thing about like, they're not going to want the cow if they're already getting the milk. Like that whole thing with guys where like, if you sleep with them too quickly, all of a sudden they're like, I don't think of you that way anymore because I already had sex with you. Like that whole thing that seems to like never go away. I, I appreciated the fact that like at the end of the day, that's not really what he was in it for. Like she, just as much as he's insecure that she only wants him for his money, he, she's insecure that he only wants her like to sleep with her and she's got to trap him in order to get him to love her and marry her. But to begin with, he's always said like, you're different than everybody else. You're smarter than everybody else. He didn't just pick her because she's some pretty girl he wants to sleep with. He really like feels challenged by her. He really like loves her the person. And so what I think is really cool about this relationship is it's the this whole this whole movie I think is about insecurity getting in the way of people in their relationships. But this particularly these both of these two people have to get out of their own insecurities and their own fear of like, well, she only wants me for my money. Well, he only wants me for my body. Um, and they both love each other. And so it's, for me, it's like, this couple is amazing because it's so relatable completely in 2022, but it's a love story that I feel like I haven't really seen before of like really being truthful about, you know, I'm a woman and, you know, how do I get this guy to like, be emotionally available to me you know do I have to like play this game of not sleeping with him and you know but at the end of the day they they really do love each other and I I just loved that storyline I think it's like the cliche versus the reality of what it is because we can see like what the cliche would be like up oh, the older boss picking like the young hot trophy wife but like that is not their reality and right so because they were never able, to me it all breaks down to the proposal. Because their proposal was interrupted by the mom, 
And throughout throughout their courtship, Linda Darnell was constantly getting him to treat her like a lady, right? So she'd be like, I'm not getting out of the car until you open the door for me kind of stuff. Like, this is how I expect to be treated. Um, and so he would like jump through those hoops and do those things for her. Um, and so at the last moment when he's proposing to her and he's basically like, oh, fine, I guess I'll get married. And she's like, gee, thanks for that. The, the mom bursts in. They never have a minute to tell each other how they really feel and they never have a minute to like really express themselves. So to me, it was like mm. that moment was what flipped things where she does want to marry him. She says yes, they kiss, but because they couldn't hash it out in that moment, it never got hashed out. It was just mm. like, oh, all right, we're getting married. So they aren't sure how they feel about each other because that moment couldn't fully happen. I, that's my theory about it. Because um, <laughs> I think if they had a few more minutes, they could have like <laughs> expressed themselves somehow. Yeah, maybe. And they do have those great lines too, like way to go Joseph Bankowitz and the part where they're having like kind of like their big final fight after he comes back and she doesn't know that he might've left her for Addie Ross. She says to him something about like, well, I feel like the merchandise. And he's like, well, I feel like the, oh, I forget the words he used. But it, it was basically like, I feel like a paycheck, you feel like merchandise. And it was very consumer driven, which was brilliant because that ties into like the George anti-consumerism. I just thought it was a cool way of phrasing all of that. That is something that I feel like in the negotiation of a relationship between men and women, that seems to be something that we're always trying to fight against is like, how much do I like let you see that I genuinely care about you versus, you know, how much do I try to manipulate this scenario to get what I want? And, you know, she was, she was having to do a lot of manipulation, a lot of like ripping her stocking and being like, Oh, so she, so he could see her leg and, you know, all this stuff that I think is like this timeless classic stuff that men and women feel like they have to do to play this this court dance of like, you know, how do I get this person? But at the end of the day, it's that, it's that game that keeps you from being able to even like know what the other person is really feeling or to be vulnerable enough to express, like, I really love somebody. And I just felt like we never tell that story. We never talk about that, but it was so well said with these two people that like, you know, um, in order to try to get each other and like to get what they want, um, they sort of had to like lose out on like how much they actually genuinely just loved each other. Because they were playing the game, you were never quite sure what was true or not. So even though she was telling him her truth from the beginning, I, I want to get married. I want to be admired by my husband. Like I want to be loved. He still can't grasp it because there are so many manipulations involved. It's like, what's true? What's not? So even when you do tell the truth, it's like, oh, did she really want that or not? Right. And then vice versa. Right. Uh, what I love is that each woman has like a very clear character arc. And so I mm. love that theirs isn't just a one person character arc because it's like the other two women have like their one person character arc. But this is like the couple character arc. They each have a character arc of like. Mm -hmm. I don't show myself to people. I'm very, I spar with people verbally. And so in the end, I'm going to be brave enough to share my real feelings with you. And so one thing that I thought was interesting was the other two women, when they see the letter, they share that they're afraid. But Laura May won't. Like, she's like, I got everything I want. I don't care if he leaves me. I'm totally. done here. And Anne Southern's character is like, no, I know that you care. <laughs> like, I right. get it. I've seen you all day try to keep yourself busy because you're terrified you're going to lose your husband that you love. Like, you can admit you love your husband. 
Also, the fact that they never said I love you in three years of marriage is shocking to me. I believe it. I buy it. Can you imagine getting married and not saying I love you to somebody, though? Because it was a different time, you know? And I feel like they just, both of them were sort of just too afraid to, like, go there. And so, you know, they're sort of operating under the impression that this is like a transactional marriage. Like she's operating under the idea that like if he could have just slept with her and kept her as his mistress, he would have. And the only reason she got him was because she like played all these games and like convinced him to marry her. So she's not under the impression that he married her because he really loved her because she played all these games to get him. I totally get it. Yeah. I totally but then I'm like, it. how else would she have gotten him is the other part of that. And also, how sad is it that that Laura May is so, so smart, but because it's the 40s, the only career advancement she can get is through her husband, basically. Like, that's what kills me. I wonder if this movie was made today, what Laura May would be doing, because she's so bright and she's so quick and she has ambition. No matter how smart she was, she wasn't going to be able to really get a job that was going to get her out of the projects the same way marrying the head, the boss of the company was going to really change her life. You know, I mean, that's kind of the, the best way for upward mobility at the time. So no wonder they both feel manipulated because this was kind of her only option. But I do like that she puts everything out on the table, too. So like, yes, and um, she she's never hiding who she is or where she's from. Like on their first date, she's like, no, he's going to come ring the doorbell and he's going to come inside my house. He's going to see where I live. The train that shakes everything all the time that makes everybody stop what they're doing. He's going to experience that. I want him to know this about me. That's true. So I like that she doesn't hide things in that way. So even though she does have these certain manipulations like you know, changing the way she speaks around him. She speaks more affluently around him. When he's gone, she's like, you ain't going to do that, <laughs> right? She says ain't all yeah, the time. Yeah, 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 And um, But when he's there and she's speaking to her mother and when she leaves, she's like, if I really had a daughter that spoke like that, I'd pummel her because she's like, good night, dearest mother. <laughs> you know, she changes yeah, how she yeah. speaks. And did you notice that at the very end of the movie, she goes back into that, like, you ain't, like she, I think the last thing she says to him is like, you ain't never gonna leave me or whatever she says. But it's like the last moment where you're just like, oh, see, now she's being her completely true open self with him. I did not notice that. And I am so impressed. Oh my goodness, what good writing. Cause the only thing I yes. thought about was the gorilla thing. She's like, you big gorilla. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> oh, if she calls you like a monkey name, that means that she really cares about you. <laughs> And then I do think it's interesting, too, though, that he's always the one that instigates the bad behavior because he's the one in their relationship that's always putting her down first. And he puts her down publicly and constantly. He tells everyone how he thinks she's classless all the time. But yeah, he's just always putting her down and she's always defending herself and she's great at defending herself. But that must feel really frustrating to, like, constantly be put down by the person. <laughs> that you love yeah but i feel like it's it's to try to show the importance of like you know being real and being vulnerable in a loving relationship because if you don't you know you can it can really become this bitter thing where it's like two ships passing in the night two people that don't feel loved people that don't feel like understood but it's kind of your own fault for having played this manipulative game the whole time they both ended up feeling used you know and and I think that's like supposed to be, the, I guess it, it was hard to watch in the beginning of the movie to see how badly they treat each other and how bad their relationship is. But I feel like it's supposed to show like, you know, the repercussions 
of 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 not being completely vulnerable and and open and honest in your relationship something that they tied in a little at the beginning was that he might have been like a perfectionist about stuff so early on he's like i don't do anything if i can't do it well and so that's his excuse for not dancing with his wife and for like watching her dance with all these men and then berating her for dancing with all these men and then you know drinking a lot too mm -hmm. and so by the end it's like he's willing to not just be vulnerable with her but be vulnerable in public right like I might not be good at this, but I'm going to dance, you know, like, right. I love you. So it's like having the security, like knowing that their love is there. He's willing to be imperfect, like make more of a fool of himself. But that's what's so crazy is that was the entire movie over and over and over again. Right. Because like even um, in the very first one, um, I might not be great in your fancy world but i'm gonna go to the party anyway even if i don't have the right dress and i think what was so cool about watching this movie is that it's so clearly trying to reach out to the women of the day and relate to them and say these are your insecurities being afraid of not being the perfect woman being afraid that you're you know you're working too hard or that you you know what i mean all the all the different possible insecurities that women of the day could probably have and the whole movie starts off with celeste home being like you know um this story may or may not have any type of relationship to any you know any persons in real life when what she's really saying is this is your story girls like th this is going to speak to you and by the way like the setting the setting is going to be your town you know what i mean like she's like it could be any town it's main street everybody's got a main street right yep. so like the way that they start off the movie is this really creative way of of setting up the story in a way that every woman watching of the day would be like, oh, it's me. It's my story. Like you could bring yourself to it, you know? Yeah. And, and because it is, it is sort of like this movie that was made to sort of assuage the, the insecurities of the women of the day. And I think that's why it's so pop probably was so hugely of a popular movie because every woman probably saw that and was like, oh that's right like no matter how much I'm not the perfect wife or no matter how much I have these insecurities you know whether I feel like I don't measure up or I feel like I come from the country or I feel like a xyz you know you leave that movie feeling like I do love my husband and like I am gonna <laughs> you know like believe in myself and open myself up more to him and how much was that the identity of so many women in 1940 was how they're doing as a wife and how they are in terms of relationship to their husband because so many women in that time didn't have any other identity so I think it's really cool that Hollywood was going out of its way in this movie to really think about the psyche of the women of the day and just give them a movie that is like exactly for them and for their insecurities and to make them feel that much more powerful in their lives. And that makes them like badasses. Like these are some amazing women. Yeah. So to like showcase that too. And it's not even just the leads, like the supporting cast is incredible too. Thelma Ritter mm. and Connie Gilchrist. Like we have these incredible older character actresses that are really awesome. But wait, I'm getting aside because I want to talk about Addie and you like led us there beautifully all of these women are facing insecurities based on an ideal. Right. And the ideal in this 
is Addie Ross, who like everyone looks up to, everyone I should say, all the men look up to is like the paragon of women, what a woman should be, right? Um, and in the end, this ideal isn't real. So Addie's being manipulative throughout. So it's kind of like, that's cool that it exists mm. on that level. But also through the structure of the story, it's really smart the way they've made this story like a mystery based on Addie's manipulation of us as the audience. So when the story starts, and you're right, she's giving us this narration of like, we're in a town, it could be any town, it's 28 minutes outside the big city. And she's very <laughs> witty, and we like her. Mm -hmm. We're on Addie's side in the beginning. So when she's kind of talking shit about these women, we believe her. We think we're in for a story about some maybe kind of terrible women, and it turns out they're not terrible. And maybe Addie isn't terrible either. But Addie manipulates our viewpoint of these women. She basically tells us, like, Jean Crane is silly. She's a silly, dumb little housewife. And, <laughs> uh, you know, Rita, she's too ambitious. Like, she, and she, I don't even think she needs to say anything about Linda Darnell, but her opinion of Linda Darnell is like, she's trash. You, like, climbed, socially climbed her way up, right? So we can, like, see Addie's viewpoint later on where we're like, oh, you manipulated us, the viewers, in the beginning, and you also set up this really cool structure mm -hmm. <laughs> that made regular life a mystery via flashback. Very cool. Yeah, the, the mystery, the excitement of trying to figure out, like, is she cool? Like, you're really experiencing this firsthand of really not knowing whether or not you like this girl, just like they probably do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it puts you on their side of being like, is Addie my friend or is she one of those crazy bitches? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's what it feels like to be the three women is like, is Addie my friend or do I feel insecure about her? Is she a threat? Well, and there's the constant narrative of the past of like a rival. Like women don't like each other because they're each other's rivals. So it kind uh -huh. of feels that way in the beginning. And then we realize like, no, these three women actually have like a really beautiful friendship and completely support each other, especially Rita. I think that Rita is really good at supporting her friends. Um, and actually, yeah. you know what? They all are. But it's uh, our mindset going in is a cutthroat mindset because of what we're hearing from Addie. And then it's all just not true. She painted a picture for us that wasn't real and mm -hmm. that was kind of her playing a game with us. Um, and then in the end, peep, there's been like debate online about if Addie really is a villain or not, because they were like, she's the one that opened all of the doors for them to get what they wanted. So like, is she really a villain? I don't know. Well, the fact that she's the narrator makes it sort of feel like she's the puppet master. And I feel like from the beginning, I think one of my questions was like, is she writing this letter in order to help them with their marriages? Like, <laughs> I obviously I don't think so. I don't think that's the case because she really ends up running off with one of their husbands for real. Um, but there is sort of this element of like, she's almost pulling the strings so that she can tell this story. That's what it, it feels like to me when I was watching the movie. It felt like, oh, I feel... I feel like this is like a, a narrator that's like once upon a time, like, you know, like here are these three women and like, here's how I'm going to like make their lives better by like teaching them a lesson. You know, that's, that's the vibe I guess. And you just made me realize that like Porter, the one who's so scared of being manipulated by his wife is manipulated by the master puppeteer, like the biggest manipulator. So it's almost like he confronts the fear of being manipulated and comes out the other side. Because everything about her is kind of like a manipulated image that isn't real. Like, nobody is like the most fashionable, always says the right thing, is socially perfect. Like, nobody is like that. So right. 
oh, I hadn't connected that before, but that's really. I, I really also cool. wonder if like we're just seeing Addie as perfect because we're seeing it through the lens of women who are super insecure about her. But I don't know that the men have ever say like, oh, she's so perfect. I think they just are friends with her. And oh. I think they all like her, but I, I don't think that they think to them, like, I don't think they actually think to themselves, like, she's better than my wife ever. I just think that we are led to feel that way because we're seeing it from the wives' perspective. I just want to throw that out there because I feel like the whole, the whole, a big point of it was that we're supposed to be intimidated by this woman. But I don't know that the, I don't know that the, me, the other men, Except for like putting her picture on the table. That's a little strange. But like, you know, getting a birthday present from your friend Addie is like, that's, I mean, why not? Right. And I think the way they feel is like, she always does the little extra thing that's like, is that a step too far? I don't know. Like, if music be the food of love, play on. Like, that's a romantic quotation, right? From Twelfth Night. So she's writing Shakespeare to my husband. What the fuck? But it's revealed. You know, no, he's just directing the play. So I don't know. I think I think she likes to play games. And so I think when you maybe it's that she's playing games with people who are insecure. So like if they weren't so insecure, they might think the games were more fun, I guess. I don't know. Is she playing games or is she just somebody that you see through a lens of insecurity? Like, I mean, if she's really just writing out if this is her old childhood friend who happens to be a guy and she knows he's directing a play and it's his birthday, that seems like actually perfectly legitimate to be like, it depends on how you take it. If you don't know the context and you're super insecure about not being the perfect wife, yeah, it's a game. Ooh. I, I yeah. do suspect there is an amount of like, I think she might be a little mean spirited in how she does things, but I don't think she's a villain, you know? Yeah. Except for when she runs away with one of the husbands. That's, that's shitty. <laughs> that's shitty. That's the one shitty thing. I thought that at the end of the day that it wasn't going to be real, that she didn't run away with any of them. Like, uh... I'm surprised that it actually ended up that she really did run away with one of them. I was surprised that that actually happened. She might be insecure, too, because it was the one who kind of idolized her over a long period of time. It's the one who's always singing her praises the most, the one who has her picture on his table for a year. So I think maybe to her it was like, oh, I'm being really admired by this person and I need to be, I need to feel like I'm admired. My husband left me. Oh, she's the one whose husband did leave her, by the way. Um, it's mentioned that Addie, Addie's husband, she was married and he left, um, but we don't get more of the story than that. So that might be like her own insecurity too, of like, I just want to be admired and this guy clearly admires me. So how funny is this that like this is the one girl that everyone has in their mind is like the biggest threat, but she's the one who lost her husband. She's the one who's like going after everybody else's to a certain extent and not understanding boundaries correctly. Like obviously maybe she's the she's the one with the most struggle and she's the one who maybe can't get along with her peers because she's like been indoctrinated by like the patriarchy and the rival stuff maybe <laughs> maybe that might be a very large reach i do love celeste home and i love the fact that she actually ends up being the narrator of all about eve that he writes in 1950 it's so cool how with these two movies joseph megowitz um almost it, they're almost like fit together perfectly because Thelma Ritter's in that one. I feel like he like kept, you know, his like main cast or like, you know, certain people and 
almost like he was like letter to three wives worked really well like with celeste being the narrator let's have her narrate this one as well and it's funny because celeste holmes i know as being ado annie in um oklahoma and she's a character actor and she's like kind of brash and kind of you know like not necessarily a lady she's kind of from the country and it's interesting to see that when she went to hollywood she was able to like you know hearing her so you know she's so good at sounding kind of alluring and classy and um she she must have really just been a great actor to be able to have so much range well and she has a lot of great like film credits too um like she was in the snake pit which is a film about like mental illness and being in a mental institution like she she has like a wide variety of credits and skills that she's able to do so she was yeah she was just clearly a very good stage actress that could make the transition that's she awesome what she was doing apparently she didn't like um tv and film like she oh. after she did all about eve she was like i'm gonna go back to theater and she like left and went back to theater well because you have so much more control over your performance in theater too so the ending of the movie is like up for debate People have so many opinions about it because the way the movie really? ends, yes, well, just the glass breaking. So um, the final line in the movie is Addie's voiceover. She says, hi ho, good night, everybody. And then a glass that they were drinking out of falls over and breaks. And um, people debate online like what this really means. <laughs> Really? So like, yeah, it's like after all the wives are secure in their marriages, this happens. Hi ho, good night everybody. Glass breaks and everyone's like, "What does it mean?" Um for me what it called back to and then online verified it so I felt, you know, vindicated. Um there's this movie called One Way Passage that came out in the 30s. Uh, starring William Powell and Cave Francis, and it was like a very big hit. And in that movie, their their thing as a couple, so they're doomed from the start. I mean, it's called One Way Passage, and the whole plot of that movie is like he's going to jail for a lifetime sentence, and will be, you know, he's going to be electrocuted in the chair because he killed somebody, and she is dying of a disease, and she's going to be dead in like three months, right? So they each oh say One Way Passage, <laughs> like they're both gonna, they're doomed. But they fall in love anyway, and they they don't tell each other their stuff because you know it's they it's the thirties they just didn't, and so every time they would like have a drink together they'd clink their glasses and it'd break and it was for luck, and um, so like the whole end of that movie is obviously they both die because again one way passage it's in the title, but um, it's like a year later and their friends have gone to Mexico for New Year's to honor them because that was their original plan that they talked about together and there's two cups that like clink and break and you're supposed to be like oh their ghosts are together and they're free now because the glass is broke so it's like that's it's homage to that movie it's a thing about good luck that was stated in that movie that i'd never heard before but also people were like wait is Addie dead did Addie somehow is she a ghost did she like there there are all these things online about is it is Addie dead <laughs> she, she killed her because they call her the dearly departed so they were like did she actually like trigger warning i'm sorry everyone did she commit suicide or no. people were like breaking of the glass is also a ceremonial thing like you do it in joyous celebrations like you know in jewish weddings we break the glass yeah so they were like is that the meaning behind it like what's the deal with this glass is it just that like her reign is over or is it like you know, she never makes social faux pas and breaking a glass is a social faux pas. She's not perfect. Like there were so many things online about it that I was very impressed with. Um, 
But I was like, wait, is it just homage to One Way Passage and that's it? I don't know. I guess I just assumed that it was like they're they're off doing their thing and like good luck to them. That's how I took it. Okay. It's a good luck. That's what I think. It's a good luck thing. I don't think it has to do with death because that would be so out of left field. Like the movie is a comedy, you know, and like just out of nowhere, you're just like, and they're ghosts. No. Although it's like a comedy that doesn't really hardcore feel like a comedy because like everything's very sophisticated. But I will say the moments of comedy to me that are strongest in terms of like physical comedy are with Thelma Ritter. Oh, yeah. And she's not even credited in this. I know. What the hell? Right? It's ridiculous. Yeah, Thelma Ritter plays their maid, Sadie. There's like 10 people in the movie. Why don't they just put everybody on there? And like, why put like someone's butler down, but like not put like someone with speaking lines down? Like, it's weird where it would be like, the butler's credited. And yet Thelma Ritter, who is like a character with a name who speaks words is not credited multiple scenes like yeah i mean they credited ben nye with the makeup i was like ben nye makeup yeah yeah (laughs) it's wonderful (laughs) he he pops up and i'm always like oh i still have your cosmetics case from college years later (sighs) yeah but Thelma ritter come on guys oh yeah when she does the whole bit with the um the screen the room divider when she's trying to fold it up Oh, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And when she she's told several times to behave like a proper maid to impress, you know, Rita's boss. Rita is Anne Southern to impress her boss. Um, and she just can't get it together. And she closes it and then looks at everyone and goes, soup's on. And you're like, oh, you're great, Thelma Ritter. That was funny. She's actually more in this movie. She's just as much in this movie as any other person is. Yes, she is. She's in a, almost everybody's life. She's yeah. in two out of the three stories. I know she's like a trained and talented actress. So moments that I like to watch her in are um, when the house is shaking from the train and they cut to her and the mom, who I was kind of like, oh, are they, maybe they could be in a queer relationship. If this is like a story today. Yeah, they totally I, like, I think could. they could be in love. But her stillness, I was I was mesmerized by it. I recommend if you're rewatching and they, you look at that shot, the mom is shaking along with it, but Thelma Ritter is just like still and cool and calm. And you're like, oh, that is a choice. And I'm so into it. You're right, because she could have been like, uh, 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 you know, like everything's shaking. But instead, she's just like, this happens all the time. I'm used to it because it does. It happens like every like five minutes. Yeah, right. So, of course, she'd be like, it's just going to hold on through this for a second. And she's street smart. She's not going to show how she really feels. Like when the mom is going to give everything away with the purse, she's like, shut up. <laughs> like, don't say a thing. She like is always in on what's going on, except when she's around the rich people. And then she says soups on because she forgets. Right. Why do you think that it's important for them to show the relationship between Thelma Ritter and the mom, you know, like their relationship is so close. Like remember when she leaves for New Year's and she's like, they're in the middle of a fight and then she's like, darn, I wish she could be there. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they have such a great relationship and they they really take the time to show this. Oh, yes. because the whole. OK, so you know how you were talking about how we're led to believe that this is all about like insecurities and cat fights and w- women who hate each other but they actually are all really good to each other and really sweet yeah. to each other maybe so much of this movie is really about women friendships even though it's so much about relationships with your your husband and your or your mm-hmm. lover or whatever it also on many different levels is showing 
how good women can be to each other and how they can be there for each other. Even yeah. like when um, the girls, um, she's embarrassed to go to the party and um, Rita comes and like helps her with the, with the dress. Yeah. And then when the, when the dress pulls off, she goes off and runs to her. I mean, there, there it's time after time, scene after scene of women taking care of each other. Right. Yeah. And being community for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like brought home when Jean Crane is talking about how her expectations of how she'll be treated by the women in this town. And then Anne Southern was like, you must think we're all really big snobs. Like, we're not. Let me show you that I'm not. Right. It's like the idea that you have versus the reality of what it is. The idea that like, oh, women can't be friends and aren't nice to each other. The reality, like women are friends and are community and supportive of each other. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And it can happen throughout the ages. Theirs is like the older version of that. It, you know, it's about love. It's about like, you know, being loving towards the other women in your life, being loving towards the, the men in your life. I think it's, uh, it really must have spoken to the women who watched this movie in 1949. Really must have meant something to them. Because unfortunately, like, I'm sure back then it could have been like, oh, this is a women's picture. But because it's like Joseph Almenkowitz handling it, it's like an Academy Award nominated film, right? It's not just like tossed aside as fluff. Like it's actually seen and viewed and taken seriously, which is even cooler. It's interesting because um, then the next movie, All About Eve, is so much about women being sneaky and not having each other's back and you know like it's funny well it starts off that way but i think in the end it's like oh wait no we karen is on my side like we are all here for each other so it is like yes one incredibly manipulative woman and then everybody else realizing that that's a manipulation and that they can still moving on without her team yeah and like how that's the negative side of it. Like, don't be manipulative like Eve. Right. Like Addie. <laughs> yeah. Don't be manipulative. That's it's only going to get you in trouble. Yeah. I feel like this film is very pure of heart. It's very like you could come in being cynical, but you're going to leave being like, no, the world's a wonderful place. If I look for the best in people and situations and you're like, mm. oh, that's so sweet and apple pie-ish and I like it, though. But it deals with real issues, though. It's not just like, oh, and they live happily ever after. And of course, relationships are easy. It's like, no, these are the specific reasons why you might let your insecurities get in the way. But don't do that because, you know, if you're really vulnerable and you show who you really are and what you really need, the people that love you will open themselves up too. Um, I want to chat about Joseph Mankiewicz for a minute because we've been mentioning him. He is the writer and director of this piece. He won an Academy Award, two Academy Awards for this, uh, Best Screenplay and Best Director, which he also did for All About Eve the following year. I think he, in his work, you can see he features strong women throughout, but he also does, he's very vocal about like, rights and what he thinks is right versus wrong so in this yes it's very feminist but we also get like commentary on capitalism and about like not like properly paying certain professions their due respect to like teachers in this case and like he breaks down consumerism in a speech of george's where he's like buy this or your life will be over like i don't want to be behind that you know i want to live in an honorable way and teach people so i i really liked that he called out those things in this piece but also he does a film called no way out starring Sidney Poitier, like Sidney Poitier's first big role, that's essentially about racism and why racism is wrong. <laughs> so you're like, mm. cool, like 1950, you're making a piece about about why this is incorrect. It's really hard to watch because it's like 
the racist is super, super racist. And you're like, oh, God, it's really hard. Mm. But it's basically like, don't you see how wrong this is and how stupid y'all racist sound? So he's very he's got a very um, strong social justice point of view that has not diminished with time. Like he, his head was in the right place. I wonder what it must have been like for him. I know that um, I know that he has spent some time in Germany and that he was Jewish. So I wonder, like, you know, what it must have been like to have the power to um, you know, make big statements like this in the 1940s, you know, after World War II is over. Um, you know, I'm sure he had a lot of feelings, but it's nice to look back at people who, you know, seem to have their heart in the right place in terms of 2022 and how we feel now. You know, it's nice yeah, to look back and be yeah. like, oh, they they knew what they were talking about even then, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, you championed women in your films and like gave them and black people, meaty roles. Yeah. And you championed black people and were very clearly like, hey, this is a super fucked up situation. Don't be part of that. Don't be racist. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. Good one. Good one. But I also do think that's part of like the Jewish tradition in general. Because um, you're right. Like his, he was raised by Jewish immigrant parents in the U.S., um, but his, his one of his parents was German. So like, a, you know, a Jewish person leaving Germany in the early 1900s, thank God they weren't there during the Holocaust. But like, I think social justice is a part of being Jewish. It's like a part of the values of being Jewish, probably because the Jewish people have been persecuted for as long as they've been Jewish people. So I think it's like a part of, I don't want to say it's a part of the religion, but it's a part of the Jewish culture to speak up for social causes in general. Mm. I'm not saying mm. all Jewish people are like that, but like that is a general part of what you are taught to question and you are taught to stand up for what is right kind of thing. Mm, um, mm. So I, I appreciate that about being Jewish. And I think that's why a lot of like Jewish artists are like that. They speak out mm. in their work. Like almost all of the directors in the early 1940s were Jewish immigrants. Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. William Wyler, Billy Wilder, I almost said Billy Wyler. <laughs> all these great directors, Joseph Mankiewicz. I wonder how that happened. Like with all the racism that existed at the time, you know, I feel like Hollywood really did get a huge amount of and, and Broadway as well. Like, you know, there were so many Jewish people involved as producers and as directors and stuff. And it, it's interesting that like in the in the arts world, at least, it doesn't seem like being Jewish was as much of an issue as it was yeah. in other places at the time, you know, because I mean, yeah. 1940s America was not like cool with Jewish people, I don't think no. like not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but in <laughs> Hollywood, it seemed like it, it was a little bit better. But maybe not. I don't know. Well, because I feel like the paths for Jewish people back then were kind of like early 1900s. Again, generalizing, I am not an expert. It was like, you've got your trade. And then it was kind of like, how how do we advance up in some way? Because it was kind of like learn a trade um, or succeed in some way. And that way of succession could be business or pick your path. But you had to be you had to be successful at it to make mm. to make sure that people behind you were lifted up. It was like a lot of pressure was placed on that and on education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like, I mean, he went to Columbia, he grew up in Brooklyn, but went to Columbia. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? So it's like this idea. Plus he had an older brother, Herman Mankiewicz, who was also a writer, a very successful <laughs> screenplay writer who co-wrote Citizen Kane. So he also had a path in. I'm sure also a lot of it was people related and helping other people out. Maybe that's also why there was a lot of um, Jewish people rising up because their family was helping to no i think that's a really good point but they they were able to they were able to rise but yeah i also think it was like ex an acceptable avenue like it wasn't discouraged necessarily by, mm. by jewish parents of the day they understood mm. the value of art uh okay so anyway like his whole story yeah raised in brooklyn originally from pennsylvania raised in brooklyn uh went to columbia followed his brother herman mankowitz out to hollywood 
And what's interesting about him is he wrote and produced a lot before he ever directed. So he really had like a really firm grasp on all of the ways to make a movie. So he worked at Paramount and MGM on really big pictures, um, both like writing uncredited and producing. And then when he went to 20th Century Fox, he was finally directing and was very prepared to be a director and knew what he wanted. Um, and I feel like he's known for really incredible dialogue, um, witty dialogue and mise-en-scene, and he's sophisticated. Um, those are kind of like Joseph Mankiewicz hallmarks. Um, and he is the great uncle of Josh and Ben Mankiewicz. Ben Mankiewicz is a TCM host today. He's the father of Tom Mankiewicz, who worked on Heart to Heart, the TV show. Um, and his like big goal, he always wanted to write for Broadway, but that like never happened for him. He never got to achieve that goal. Oh, well, no wonder he's got Celeste home and everything. When he recast a lot of his actors, so like Linda Darnell is in No Way Out, and she's the viewpoint of like, she's the one who's dating the racist, and then she sees the sickeningness of like the of that racism pervades throughout her community and she's the one that's like oh i could choose to not be racist oh wow life would be so much better so she's like the viewpoint for the audience the transition from racism to not being racist um in that film she's so beautiful she's stunning i've never seen her before but she's so beautiful and i love her in this movie this this movie is very like stars of the 40s so like the women in this film were very famous at the time but were not like i feel like renowned longevity wise like in this film we have um jean crane playing deborah bishop and so she was in state fair in the 40s the rogers and hammerstein movie musical and she was in leave her to heaven excellent film we've talked about it on the show uh, the woman playing Rita Phipps is Anne Southern. She was very famous for playing this character called Maisie that made like, they were a billion Maisie movies. It was like a series about like, I'm just a showgirl in this country town. I ended Amazing. up here by accident, right? So I love she's that. like brassy and fun. And so she's Maisie and we would have known that in the day. And then um, Linda Darnell did a ton of really big movies in the forties. I mean, she was in, I mentioned No Way Out. That was the fifties, but um, she was in a film called Fallen Angel, Unfaithfully Yours, Forever Amber. So she's kind of like this Hollywood beauty in the 40s, and her career doesn't really go that far into the 50s. Also, she she had a really tragic death. Um, she died at 41 in a house fire. She was alerted by the alarms and got trapped in a room and couldn't escape. So she was she was literally burned alive in, when she was 41 years old. Um, which is horrifying. So Linda Darnell will never maybe fully know if she could have had a career beyond all this. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, and I do want to mention Kirk Douglas is in this. He plays George. Um, he's great in this, but I also want to mention that he does have like a sexual assault allegation. Um, Natalie Wood's sister mentioned that, well, she, Natalie had told her that he assaulted her when Natalie was 17. So like, I want to put that out there just so people at home know. Hmm. What? Like, what are we talking about next? <laughs> Interesting. No, um, it's like I'm not excusing any of this type of thing, but I do think that like all this stuff, all these stories, it's confusing as to like how much they were like, was this a, somebody that like consistently just like raped women or was it like a, a misunderstanding type of situation where like men at this time were taught like not to really, I don't know, like there's just so much there's just so much context that we're missing when you hear something like that. And not to say that, like, I mean, I, I was not there, so I have no idea, but like, there's so, there's so much, there's so much gray area. And when you, when you call someone out and say, okay, they, they, 
maybe they maybe raped this person. It's like, well, there there's so much room for like, what do you mean by that? And how did it happen? And you know what I mean? That like, I think it's important to say and it's important to be like, there's a possibility here. But like, there's also like so much like that we don't know about that situation well and you actually this is actually tying it back to the movie because something in the film here is the idea you're i think essentially back in the day men were basically raised to be rapists i do think right like it was like take what you can from a woman even if she says no she doesn't really mean it just take everything you can from her and if she stops you she stops you somehow like it's even uh what's his name uh porter in this kind of exhibits that behavior right um, like he's always trying to get something from her and she has to have the next thing planned so she doesn't get taken advantage of, right? right? He's trying to harass her throughout the film. Like he's her boss. He takes her in a car to a secluded location, very much tries to like have sex with her. And she's like, no. So he listens to her, thank God. But I think in the day that might not have been, she might not have had power in that situation. And it could have been a really awful, tragic situation. But right, this movie calls it out. It's like, all of Porter's behavior, Porter has this whole like, I'm a man speech in the beginning of the film where he's like, men are the boss and men should be in charge and I'm a man. And then all the women characters are kind of like, um, no. And George Phipps as well is like, no. But there's a quote in there um, that Anne Southern has. And she was like, well, if all the men in the world are like what you're saying, there'd be more war. Leave my kids out of it. So it's like the acknowledgement of like that kind of behavior should not be tolerated right this like uber macho masculine like i control man fight big strong they're like no that leads to war war is bad (laughs) like i liked that direct acknowledgement and i liked um each of the female characters calls out that behavior so laura may at one point says like oh god is he going on a stupid tirade again don't listen to him and then at the end gene crane is like hey you have all this big talk you're acting like a man you're not acting like a grown-up behave like a grown-up please so each of the women calls him out for his like toxic macho bullshit. that's right but i do want to acknowledge what you're saying too it's like men were raised with this idea of like it's allowed for me to take advantage of women sexually And so it is when you look at the past, and I'm sure there were even, there's probably more sexual assault than we even know about. The ones we do know about are also terrible, but it's like, it's, it was like more of the norm back then socially, which is why it's so messed up and so hard to talk about today. And a lot of this movie is about miscommunication. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of it is like, you know, women having the ability to figure out how to speak up for themselves and um how to be clear about what it is they want so they can express it um and i don't think that we're taught that we can be in charge of our own sexuality i don't think that we're taught that it's about our pleasure as well we're taught you know like we kind of are go alongers we kind of like you know if if you're going to be this big this big man that makes all the decisions then like i'm just going to keep my mouth shut and like just try to make you happy cuz that'll make me happy um and we're not as comfortable with being like no i'm just saying no cuz like you know i just don't the answer is just no right now like you know what i mean like we're just not we're not practiced at that and i think that is part of our our society and i think a lot in this movie is trying to get you to like figure you know figure out what it is you're really feeling and be able to like really genuinely communicate that yes 100 percent, and to set boundaries for the future so like uh ann southern's character like learns to set boundaries throughout but what i like about laura may's character is she knows how to set boundaries from the beginning that was not mm. her issue yes. you know she is very much like 
this is what I expect. These are my expectations. This is how I expect to be treated. This I'm describing the situation that's happening right now. Like you want to talk about work? You're my boss. You want to talk about work? Let's talk about work. This is what I view at work. This like I just think uh, she's so yeah. so cool, so smart, and has boundaries from the beginning. And boundaries like aren't her issue. And I kind of love that. So what do you think about her, her issue is? What do you think? I her think issue it's being is? vulnerable. I think she doesn't yeah. know. It's like she can share how she really feels, but you know how like there's the way of sharing how you feel where you can kind of still hide behind a mask. She doesn't know how to lower the mask. Mm. And I think her beauty is a detractor almost for her because her beauty got her what she wanted, but because she is so beautiful, he's not taking what she says seriously. It's like he thinks her beauty is is part of like the manipulation. And she's like, I can't help it that I look like this. I'm Linda Darnell and I'm just beautiful. I can't help it. Like, <laughs> I still need yeah. to be loved. But yeah, it's like she she's saying what she wants, but still has kind of a filter or mask up where she doesn't fully know how to be vulnerable because she's worried about maybe being shut down or laughed at or l losing out. I don't totally know, but she, they both have their, their filters up. Totally. But she's great at setting boundaries, and I was really respecting the hell out of her oh, boundaries. Oh, I love <laughs> it. That's why I like those scenes, because she's just so in control. Of a, of a situation in the 40s that women might not always feel so powerful in. Yes, exactly. Um, and she's not worried about hurting his feelings either. Like, if he's going to come after her and she's not into it, there's a line that Ann Southern had about her, like, oh, I'm not worried about you finding any wolves because they're, they're, like, with kids at a picnic. And she's like, well, we're going to go in the woods and take a hike. You know, we might see some wolves. And Aunt Southern's like, oh, you and wolves. I'm not I'm not so worried because Laura May knows how to handle everybody. Right. Right. Like she's not in danger from a wolf. She knows how to put you in your place. And it's amazing. Right. Right. I love her. I love her. And that's why it's funny when they're like, oh, Addie Ross always says the right thing. And I'm like, Laura May always says the right thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to be like Laura May. But Laura May's too strong. Like that's I feel like that's what they're trying to say with Laura May, like you were saying, she doesn't have that like ability to balance out the sophisticated, like the, the alluring, you know, as women, it's very difficult. We have to be both. We have to be like, you know, these like strong in control, like women, but at the same time, show you that we want you show you that we, you know, we love you. Show yeah. you that we're soft. Can't we just be people? <laughs> like, why is this so hard? Why is it such a game? Yeah. That's why I liked George and Rita the best. They were like my couple goals. I was like, oh, yeah. they're equal and they like each other and they're friends, but they love each other. It was just so sweet. And they were so yeah. cute. They were my couple goals. All right. Well, that's the type of guy you need to end up with, I think. Like, yeah, know. yeah. Because he says early on, he's like, I love that you're independent. I love that about you. And he's like, I'm not trying to dim your light. I just want to, like, make you aware that you're making work your whole life. And you're right. If it was a man, they don't seem to care. Like, Porter clearly makes work his whole life and nobody cares. So, yeah, that is a little, you know, messed up. But, I mean, it's it's just of the day, right? Yeah. But he does support her. He's still like, yeah, I want you to have a job that you like. Yeah. Please have it. Continue to have it. He's a feminist. We love him. Also, that was a question of mine. I was like, so wait a minute. Wait a minute. If Jean Crane's whole issue. Also, we're not really talking about her. I'm sorry. It's because her story is the most boring of the three. I'm sorry. It's, it's so boring. It's it's like she's lovely. I like Jean Crane. But yeah, her story of the three. That's why it goes first. It's because it's like the least complex, let's say. It's really just her own insecurities and that's it. The uh, where was it going with this? Oh, George. It was George. So it's like how if she, if they're part of like the rich set, 
how have they if and if her job is only a couple years old at the radio how could they have afforded to be part of this rich country club set this whole time if he was a teacher who's constantly like his thing is like i don't make any money and i'm aware of that and i'm fine with it i think what i'm doing is honorable i think i think we're talking about people that come from a bracket that already has money like i don't think that either of those people work in order to like only pay their bills like obviously they live in this nice house because they've already come from money like i, I think they come from this world they grew up in this world that's why they all know each other like this is a time period where however whatever class you were born into is the class you're going to be in it's not like you have that much ability to shift around yeah you know what i mean you're right i hadn't uh, thought about that, that it was like generational wealth. Duh. Yeah. That's like how they're affording these things. Duh. Well, that's just, that's just how they grew up. That's how they are the way that they are. You know, like they, they grew up in this world and um, the first girl didn't. It's so interesting because this movie does play with your conceptions where we have like ideas about what people who go to a country club are like. And they're kind of negative ideas, but these people are like not that way and they're kind. And we have ideas about like a lecherous 45 year old boss going after his 23 year old like secretary. But then this shows you the opposite of that. So this movie is almost like don't make snap judgments about stuff. Mm -hmm. Like things could be different than you think, mm -hmm. you know, same yeah. with Addie. Don't make a snap judgment about Addie's character because her character is going to flip. <laughs> like you can't trust this character as a narrator. Yeah, I really appreciate that about this script that they could that they could surprise us, you know, 70 years after the movie was made that, mm -hmm. you know, we still have these assumptions about what this means. And these characters surprised us. I will say the second time around watching it because it had been a few years. The, the first time I saw it was several years ago and I just fell in love with it and was like, oh, this movie, it's incredible. And so rewatching it this time, knowing it was Porter, you realize he's the one that has had the most longing for Addie and she's been the most out of reach for him because Brad dated her in high school or whatever. Like they've already dated, that's already done, nobody cares. George and her never dated and they don't, he's so into his wife, it doesn't matter. So Porter's the only one that's like got this longing for her and hasn't like had her yet, experienced mm. Addie, like loving her mm. yet. So mm. once I realized that watching it back, knowing it's Porter, they do put a lot of clues in there where you're like, oh, it's gotta be him. But the twist is that he doesn't actually leave. And also the twist is, oh, I didn't even mention this. Brad was on a business trip, so he doesn't come home. So we assume it's Brad that's left um, Jean Crane's character, Deborah, and she's freaking out about it. And her, oh, I didn't mention her character arc either. Her character arc is that in the beginning, she is insecure, doesn't know how to step out on her own, is really afraid of facing this like country club life existence. And at her first party, it's a disaster. Like her hair gets done weird that day by some stylist. Her dress is super old because she hasn't had time to buy a new dress. And I was kind of like, if you don't have time to buy a new dress, you could stay in for the night. You really don't need to like go out tonight. If this is really your first night back from the Navy, like why are you going out was kind of my question. <laughs> but I don't know. I would sleep, but that's just me. Um, but she, so she doesn't have like the proper attire to wear. She gets really drunk at the party. She feels like she embarrasses herself. Her dress like kind of rips apart a little bit. It's, you know, she feels embarrassed and Southern helps her. It's a whole thing. So tonight's the opposite of that, right? Like we see that now she's dressed well. She looks, she looks good and she's not afraid to go be with these people, even if it's alone. Cause before it was kind of like, well, at least I have my husband and he'll be there with me. Now she's like, no, if I don't have a husband, 
I'm strong enough. I can handle going out on my own. I'm not going to drink because I don't want to and I don't want to be drunk this time around. Mm. So it's like we see her full arc of like becoming really insecure to like being secure in herself and being okay to do things on her own. But we're originally led to believe that it's her husband that's left because he's the one that didn't come home. But he didn't come home for a business trip and that turns out to be legit. So the the twist of it not being Brad, but it being Porter and Porter chose to come back and stay is like the big twist of the film. It's a good twist. My other just stupid little thing was how does Rita have the time to write and produce five new shows every week? That's insane to me. How does she do that? She has twins. She has two kids. Yeah, but she, she's got a nanny. She's got help. She's rich. Listen, if you have them, that money, you could have lots of kids and write TV. <laughs> and have a really awesome husband. Exactly. And like, probably he takes care of the kids at night, let's be honest. He did. He was putting them to bed. Exactly. Like, I'm not surprised with that character. So like, I'm sure she's got plenty of time to write a TV show. And also, it's never specifies if she's if she's the writer or the producer, because she has to take notes and make corrections. So I was like, mm. is that a writer job here or a producer job? Because it's radio and I really don't know how radio worked. You know? Right. Okay. I'm not going to stress about it too hard in my brain then. Um, oh, and just like the movie itself looks gorgeous. Just want to shout out to that. Uh, the the sets were stunning. I wanted George and um, I keep wanting to call her Maisie and Southern's house. <laughs> they, ha- they have the cutest house with like the cutest little reading nook. And I mm. just loved, I really loved their house. I just loved their whole existence. You just loved them. You just loved that storyline. Um, oh, 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 and one more thing I wanted to bring up too. So there are like these special effects kind of in this film where when each of the women are concerned that the letter is about them and i did mention they're on a boat so like they get the letter as they're going on a boat there's like this kids charity thing going on that day where the three of them have agreed to like take care of these children on an island and like do fun island things like they're gonna you know do a weenie roast lunch where she makes a funny comment about (laughs) like when you're pulling weenies apart your hot your hands start to feel like hot dogs and i was like ooh, everything everywhere all at once that's mm-hmm. Italian. Anyway, because there's characters that have hot dogs on their hands. Anyway, so they're all trapped on this island. There is no phone. They do see the phone after they get the letter, and they're like, ooh, we could run off the boat and call and find out which of our husbands left. But we are trapped on a boat. Ah! So we're introduced to their insecurities via flashback, as I mentioned. But the way we get to our flashbacks to kind of show and separate that it's a flashback is um, Joseph Mankiewicz did this, like, audio thing where their voice almost sounds like a robot a little bit. Like they'll be obsessing about a thought. So Jean Crane, her thought, like, is it Brad? Is it Brad? And it becomes like this mechanic, like, is it Brad? Like it's a whole weird mechanical sound, right? Oh yeah, that sound is crazy. So and the most impressive one is the George one, where she's like, why did George go fishing? And then it's like, why did George go fish? It's like an auto-tune like thing. So apparently Joseph Almenkowitz was so proud of that because it was like a technical feat like it was very difficult to do so uh he had mentioned like later on how important that was to him and how proud he was of those moments that had the digital like sounding thing i don't know i don't remember what they did to accomplish that but he was so proud of it because when you watch it you're like that does not come from the 40s that comes from the 80s like whatever he's doing to make that happen even just the concept of like making the rhythm of the faucet into her thought. Like even that, the, the creativity of that is not something that they were doing in movies in the 40s. Like they weren't being that experimental. And I think just that thought 
of doing something strange like that, doing something creative like that, I can see why he was proud of it because it takes you out of it when you're watching. You're like, well, this really doesn't seem like something they would do in this time period. And I think I can totally see why that was something where he was like, this is brand new. This has not been done before. And it's weird, but it's like, it's expressive. You know, like the expression to it is very experimental and creative and I think that's that's very rare in this time period when like a flashback might there's like ways of doing flashbacks that we're familiar with right like the kind of we're gonna fade into it it's gonna be like yeah like a watery look and then it's for a flashback so yeah the creativity of doing flashbacks differently than they might have been done in the day. That was very cool. Definitely noticed that. So we're going to head into the modern lens portion of this podcast. What did not hold up? What does hold up? For me, weirdly, this time there was more positive than negatives, which is awesome. Yeah. But one of my negatives, like what doesn't hold up, is Linda Darnell is a white woman who's playing someone who's supposed to be, I guess, half Latina. Really? There was confusion about it because they'd mentioned that they were Irish in like a Latin American country. So I was like, so are they Latin American? Or like, I don't, I, it was never totally clear, but he, Porter in the beginning makes a derogatory comment about his wife being Latinx, but then saying she has an Irish last name. So you're kind of like, oh. okay, that was kind of racist, but also Linda Darnell was not Latinx. I, and I don't know if she was supposed to be, and he was just making that derogatory comment. But I was like, okay, I'm noting that. <laughs> Either way, it's oh. you know, a little bit well, offensive. Well, her, her mother is probably Irish, so maybe... And maybe, is there something to the idea that her sister is not what she is? Maybe. They look very different. One is brunette, one is blonde. And and her dad's not around, so maybe maybe it is that she's supposed to be Latinx. And we just don't ever meet her Latin father. Well, and there was that one part when the pretentious boss lady, um, Anne Southern's whole catastrophe is that she's throwing this dinner for her boss and everything has to be perfect. And she's like kind of, you know, being rude to her whole family so that this meeting goes perfect. And the boss is so rude and she breaks the husband's birthday record and doesn't even care. She's rude to everybody. And um, there's one point when someone on the show says like gracias and the old white lady who's like cis straight old white lady turns to linda darnell's character who's supposedly latinx and says that means thank you in spanish and linda darnell looks at her and goes gracias right we're showing how like how ignorant you look lady but that's another reason why i was like oh they're making the latin american tie-in oh i missed all of that okay okay Um, got it but anyway so like i was noticing stuff like that um, and then what else? Oh, Porter's like toxic masculinity speech is pretty rough to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> the men are the best and I'm a man and men should run everything and don't let your wife tell you what to, like all his whole like rant. Uh, but then everyone's reaction to it is just like, shut up, you're awful. And that's not true. So, right. of that. so we, we got to say it in order to make the rebuttal. So we still appreciate the movie, even if we don't appreciate the character. And then um, like there's one person of color in the film who's in a serving position. And you're kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, I didn't notice. Um, and then there's a boss hitting on Linda Darnell, you know, like your boss taking you out to have sex with you and putting your job at risk will never be cool. I totally understand what you're saying, but I feel like this wasn't that scenario. In a world where women really do have to marry the right person in order to have a better life, I don't think I see this moment as a boss going after someone just to sleep with them and then cast them aside and harass them. I see it as two people who 
really were a good match better than they even realized. And so, and so the fact that she was his boss actually never was a thing that was a bad thing for her. It only helped her. I, I think it's more just in general, like the idea that like your boss can take you out with the intention of hitting on you. And that's like an okay thing. Right. Is exclusive to not now. Totally. Cause you're right. It is not, that's not the storyline. That's it's an interesting thing because now women have the ability to move forward on their own. Now women have the ability to have their own credit card. Like we're looking at a situation where like women really didn't have the ability for any upward mobility unless their boss asked them out. You know what I mean? So I feel like it's, it's a totally different scenario. And had he been just doing it just to sleep with her, that'd be one thing. But just because she says, how many other women have you done this with? Doesn't necessarily mean that like he was doing it with a lot of women. For example, like she's pretty insecure about the idea that he just sleeps with lots of women, right? That's one of her insecurities. That doesn't mean that it's the truth. Like when he calls her a cab, she says like, how many other women do you call a cab for? Like, this is a thing that you probably do all the time. And he's like, because I am in business and in business, I need a lot of, like he even says like, that's not me. That's not who I am. So like, I think part of why we see it as kind of like this weird situation is because we're seeing it from her perspective of like this douchey guy who's just probably sleeping with lots of women. But I don't think he ever really gives any indication that like that's who he is or that's why he's taking her out. You know, he really does like her, the person. And why would like Greg and Brad, Greg, okay, okay their names are so boring that I forget them. I know. George and Brad. Why would George and Brad be friends with him? Because they're clearly two like upstanding men, right? Who George is very an honorable person. Brad, we barely know, so I'm just assuming. But they're <laughs> two like very upstanding men. So why would they be friends with Porter if he wasn't also mm, upstanding? Totally, totally. Why would they be friends with Addie if she wasn't either? That's another great point too. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that their names are generic because I think it plays into the whole concept of the. It's such good writing, and it's it's meant so that this could be the everyday man. This could be the everyday women. Like there's, you know, these names are names that are supposed to represent all of us that we can all relate to this movie. So some positive ones, we've talked about most of them. I love the treatment of women in this and how they're given full characters and stories, um, how they are like bosses in their respective fields, essentially. Like Jean Crane killed it in the Navy. She crushed it. She was great as a wave in the Navy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And we get the sense that like what's unsettling for her is real life. So she's awesome. Um, and then, I mean, Anne Southern crushing it in the radio game. And then Laura May, so brilliant. Even if it's like, you know, getting your rich husband, still brilliant. They're all very <laughs> intelligent women who are like full characters and well-rounded. So I love that. I mentioned all this earlier, like Rita's job and the distinction that um, she's going to keep it but set boundaries and she's making that choice. Loved that. Mm -hmm. um, what else? They're just her relationship with George, obviously, I've mentioned it several times. Loved it. Loved the calling out of the toxic masculinity and specifically like pulling the war into it. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I like that Porter has a change of heart um, and that we mentioned all the women call him out on his toxic masculine stuff. And then I liked like the calling out of the pitfalls of consumerism and the unfair wages of teachers. <laughs> I was like, yeah, all these yeah. still hold up. 
and they all still hold up. It's amazing. That's what, you know what? That's that's when a movie is really classic is when even though we can watch it through the lens of the 1940s and be like, life is not this way now, we still can relate to the themes. Yeah. And I think that's what makes, for me, when I'm watching a movie, like, that really, that really took me off guard how much I was like, this is so relatable 70 years later. It's like timeless in, in its execution a lot mm-hmm. of it. We are going to head into the double feature portion of this show. Um, If you liked this movie, check out, obviously, check out All About Eve, the other Joseph Mankiewicz classic. It's excellent. Um, I actually would also, I I wrote down a lot of movies, but The Heiress, the one we were supposed to watch this week, I actually think would pair really well with this because it's similar themes of like, you're not sure of people's intentions throughout and that kind of resolves the story. But it's also about like the empowerment of the female character. Um, going from like insecure to being very secure. Uh, so the heiress, um, I would say the women would be cool to watch with this, uh, mm. you know, that like a cast of women, it's a comedy, not as, um, feminist, but still good. Um, now Voyager, a woman finding herself, love it. Um, I, the ghost of Mrs. Muir, it has like, uh, people that don't really get along, fall in love with each other. And one of them's a ghost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Joseph Mankiewicz directed it. Did a glass fall down? No glasses fall down. Actually, I don't remember. Maybe they did, and I don't remember. Unfaithfully Yours was one I wrote down too, which is Linda Darnell is the female star of that film, and it's like the it's a really cool dark comedy uh, that like reads better today than it did in the '40s. But mm. it's Rex Harrison dreaming up different. He he thinks his wife is cheating on him. And he's a conductor. So while he's conducting each of his three symphonies that night, he's thinking of ways he's going to kill his wife. And then when he actually tries to execute it, all of the things go wrong. So it's like kind of twisted. But Linda Darnell is the wife in that. And it's I think it's cool because it's a unique way of storytelling just like this. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. And then I wrote All That Heaven Allows because that's a lot about like, don't live the life that was set out for you find true love and live your own way. It's like the opposite of this, like the country club is the bad thing and you want to be free of it. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote like the best years of our lives, except instead of three men, it's three women. Uh, I wrote a lot of stuff. I wrote desk set, woman of the year. Um, yeah. Oh, I wrote maybe watch One Way Passage. And then I also yeah. wrote Old Acquaintance, even though I've never seen it. That's the Betty Davis one. And I figured you had seen it. See, no, old acquaintance. Yeah, it's like two women coming back together. One was like chose the road of like success and fortune, and one chose the road of like being married and like having a housewife situation. Okay, okay. So I was like, oh, that might be good. I haven't seen it though, so I don't, I don't know officially. I want, I want more movies like that. You know, like that deal with what people are actually going through instead of just like watching, you know marvel superhero movies where are the psychological you know we understand what people are going through movies well we've lost that mid-level movie now it's people only make movies for the big bucks or they make like kind of less quality tv movies like everything's a made for tv movie but those don't feel deep enough to me like they're fun but they're not there's no mid-level movie like the woman king honestly that was such a relief to watch because it was the closest thing to like a mid-level movie I've seen in a while. Mid-level meaning like mid-budget, where you're not putting Mm. like all your eggs in this one basket and you need to make a certain amount of dollars. It's like this mid-budget movie that can be character-driven, that can feel like entertainment, (laughs) but like high-quality entertainment. So um, yeah, I miss all that. Like Sleepless in Seattle would not get made today. You know, that movie's 
not going to, it doesn't have superheroes. It would right. be watered down yeah, and made on Hallmark or something. And that's a shame. Not that Hallmark's bad. Right. I love Hallmark, but <laughs> we don't have, yeah, we don't have the middle tier of like real life people in filmmaking. It's all like independent. That's kind of what that is. I think I miss it too. Um, do you have any double features that you were thinking of while watching this? I mean, just all about Eve, just, you know, I think that really relates because Joseph L. Mankiewicz did it the following year and won all those awards for it, but also like use so many of the same characters. Um, so it'd be interesting to compare and contrast like, you know, what he was going for with both movies. It's almost like Linda Darnell was, I, she is not the prototype for Margot, don't get me wrong. Margot Channing is her own thing, but it felt like the, the quippiness of Linda Darnell's character in this really elevated it was like translated into Margot Channing's character I feel mm, strong fierce women who are like very in control and who always know what to say and good writing man I miss good writing like that where every line is just clever <laughs> whereas now it's like all Marvel so everything that's like witty is only in relation to a comic book world and I want real people <laughs> saying real witty things. Yeah, saying shucks. And I left my autograph book at the cleaners, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and what's his face? Isn't the ghost in Mrs. Muir? The guy, um, oh, I can't remember his name. He committed suicide. And he was in, he was the bad guy in All About Eve that like, he's the critic. What's his name? Oh, Addison DeWitt. Addison DeWitt. I think it's George Sanders, right? Sanders, yeah. Yeah, George Sanders. He's in He ghost played Sheer Khan. In uh, the Jungle Book. Jungle Book. That's yeah. I forgot mm -hmm. that. But definitely also see this movie because it was it was so good, so much better than I had even thought, dreamed it would be. So thank you so much for sharing it with me. Oh well, thank you so much for being here. It was lovely having you as a guest, and we will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Ashley Blanchett. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at talkclassictome for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.